Welcome once again to another TMG interview. I'm Paul Preston, joined here by fellow movie guy and frequent contributor to the MovieGuys.net, Ray Scalacci. And we're happy to be talking to an author and a Hollywood do-it-all guy, really. Uh, here are some examples. He was a story analyst at Universal and Fox, as well as an executive story editor at Paramount Pictures, where he did jobs like giving story notes for Top Gun and supervising the early development of The Godfather Part 3. No small job and no small movies. He eventually worked all over Hollywood, Disney, TriStar, Orion, HBO, and more, producing and writing films such as the uh, Ed Harris thriller, The Last Innocent Man. And did I say author? Yes. Now his mystery book, Someone to Watch Over Me, is available at all the usual suspect places to go for a book, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and more. Please welcome Dan Bronson, everybody. Well, there is much to discuss, especially when you've worked all over Hollywood and with the people you've worked with. But let's begin with that book. Uh, our own Ray Scalacci here has described it in a review you can now read at themovieguys.net uh, as the main character being a babysitter to the spoiled children of the silver screen, trying to keep them from destroying themselves in the late 40s. So there's mystery, there's classic Hollywood. How do you describe the book to a potential reader? Uh, for example, everyone listening now. <laughs> well, it's something that I've been thinking about for, gosh, 10, 15 years. I wanted to do, I, I find the post-war period, it, it's, it takes place in Hollywood in 1947. And I find that, that period of post-war Hollywood fascinating because it's, it begins with the studio system still intact and very, very powerful. But the Fishers and its foundation are already beginning to appear. Uh, Paramount consent decrees, the stars going out uh, as independent contractors. It'll be Jimmy Stewart in a few years, uh, making you know, uh, huge piles of money. Uh, exactly the kind of thing that the studio heads tried to prevent right back at the beginning when they founded the studios. So it's a period of transition and there's, there's an awful lot going on. At any rate, I, I wanted my, my uh, protagonist, my narrator, to, uh, to be someone who'd been on an actor, who'd been on the verge of stardom. World War II broke out. He volunteered. And he saw, survived D-Day, the Battle of the Bulge, and the freeing of the death camps. And he comes back physically and emotionally scarred. He's got a big scar that runs right across his right cheek. And it's the kind of emblem of the scars that he, he has inside. He comes back numb, morally numb from what he's seen. And the studio takes pity upon him, gives him a job as a publicist. Uh, they didn't call them fixers in those days, but that's exactly what they were. Their job was to suppress publicity. And he's very, very good at it. Uh, and then he gets his most difficult assignment. He is, is made the nursemaid of the studio's sex pot star, their biggest star, the star of the picture in which the head of the studio has risked everything. And she's a mess. <laughs> she, she requires 20, 30 takes on every shot. She's late to the set repeated. She disappears for periods of time. Uh, and uh, that's exactly what happens. She disappears and he has to find her without the help of anyone, including 
the police because no one must know she's gone. So that's the setup. And I kind of have a lot of fun with it after that. I, uh, my, the, the voice actor who uh, is, uh, has just completed the audiobook. I don't think it's up yet. Uh, he said that in the course of recording the book, he fell in love with Savannah, but he wants to marry Evil Wild, the screenwriter character in the thing. So <laughs> what, what I think he was saying is that the characters were as real for him as they are for me. I mean, these, in, in my screenplays and in this book, the characters are always as real to me as you or anyone in my life. Uh, and one of the hard things is finishing a book or finishing a screenplay because you're saying goodbye to people that you'll never know again as intimately as well as you have while you're writing them. At any rate, that's, that's the long-winded version of the book. <laughs> it's, it's so true uh, about what you said about put, closing the last chapter of the book. Or screen, or the last page of a screenplay. It's it's sad. And it can be depressing too. Uh, I need to ask in regards to someone to watch over me. It, it starts off like a fun gossip tour of Hollywood in the '40s, and then suddenly you switch gears to this hard-boiled detective yarn. I understand you writing in your first book, your memoirs, but for your second book. What made you choose this genre or did it choose you? Oh, it chose me. I, I love the genre. Uh, I always have, it was actually a friend from Scotland who got me reading uh, Raymond Chandler. Wow. <laughs> she said, you've got to read this guy. Uh, uh, he's, he's a wonderful writer. She, she mentioned this one line. Uh, she was a blonde to make a priest put his foot through a stained glass window. Uh, you know, that's pretty damn good. A blonde <laughs> to make a priest put his foot through a stained glass window. <laughs> Anyhow, that sold me. So while I was over uh, in, I, I spent a summer in uh, England and Scotland uh, studying Shakespearean production. I was, I was back in my old academic days. Uh, and that was one of the great things about being an academic. <laughs> you could get grants like that. Uh, and I, I spent whatever spare time I had reading the works of Raymond Chandler. And that did it. Uh, it, it just, I fell in love. I'm still in love. I've read him. I've read Ross McDonald. Uh, well, all the greats over and over and over. Uh, it's, it's a wonderful genre. And it's one that so often in, in the hands of the best practitioners rises above the level of, of the genre. It's in rises above the level of mere entertainment to art. You see that again and again and again. And I know the complaint of, of people like Russ McDonald and Raymond Chandler was, they don't take us seriously. We're just mystery writers. Well, there are a lot of mystery writers who are also very serious writers. And I, I like to think of myself as among them. It, these, the, the book means a great deal to me. Uh, Dan, I'm wondering, you started off as a former English and American literature professor and suddenly gave up that career for the unstableness of Hollywood. Now, first I gotta <laughs> ask, were you, were, were you married at the time? Yes. Okay, how did your wife feel about that? And why did you suddenly decide to do that? 
honey, we're going to be uh, financially unstable. Is that cool? Thanks. Great. Pack the car. <laughs> well, I was hired as the Shakespeare professor and American literature professor. And we had this thing called winter term uh, between, we were on a two semester system. And in the month between the fall semester and the spring semester, we, each faculty member was allowed to teach anything that they wanted, whether they were qualified or not. Well, I chose film. And you know, usually in a winter term course, a uh, faculty member would get five, six students. I got over a hundred and I had a wonderful, wonderful time teaching this course. Um, and I used the success of it as an argument for making it part of the regular curriculum. So I got the intro to film course uh, established and then I got uh, a film seminar course established. Uh, my favorite was, was one in, in uh, Hitchcock and Wells. Uh, and then I got uh, a contact, I made a contact at the Directors Guild and I got internships for my, uh, my students at, or for the best of my students at the Directors Guild. And then I got a grant from the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences to bring a director to campus. And I got Lamont Johnson, uh, who was a wonderful friend and mentor in the years to come. Uh, he was an actor turned director. Probably his best known uh, television film was The Execution of Private Slovic. But oh. he did many of, of the greats, like That Certain Summer, uh, uh, My Sweet Charlie, on and on, uh, uh, Fear on Trial. I was just great, great movies. And he, he made a, a number of, of wonderful features as well, like The Last American Hero and uh, uh, The Mackenzie Break. Anyhow, he came to campus. We'd never met each other. I picked him up at the end. I was teaching at DePaul University in Indiana at the time. And uh, I went over to the airport. There were 300 people on that plane. We had never seen each other before. And we walked right to each other. He had this big, booming voice. Uh, he'd been... Matter of fact, he'd been uh, the top uh, radio actor in, in New York in the early days. Uh, he'd, he'd grown up with tuberculosis of the bones uh, and was in bed, I think, until the age of 11. He grew up with adults. And uh, uh, at any rate, he was 4F uh, during the war. And he, he had this Orson Welles voice and he became a very, very successful radio actor. At any rate, uh, we just, we really hit it off and I kept him running. We, we had this thing called the Lamont Johnson Film Festival. It ran for three days and I kept the poor son of a gun running from eight in the morning till about two in, in, in the next morning. And uh, the climax of the whole thing was a screening of his wonderful basketball film, One on One. It had come out as a big hit uh, and I had, had arranged with Warner Brothers to screen it. Uh, as the climactic event, the Beaumont Johnson Film Festival. And uh, uh, it was to open our new performing arts center. It's gonna be the first thing. We had a thousand people coming. The day before I get a call from Warner Brothers saying, sorry, Dan, we couldn't get the clearances from the union. We're not oh. going to be able to send you one-on-one. -on -one. <laughs> uh, this is not good. So I called my friend at the uh, Directors Guild and asked him if there was anything he could do. 
And the next day, three o'clock in the afternoon, these big heavy cans of film showed up at the Indianapolis airport and we went ahead and showed it. During, during this, I introduced him and the film and he was standing next to my wife and uh, I, I went on as I tend to do at the introduction and, and he said, he turns to my wife and says, he really loves it, doesn't he? <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, and then afterwards he said, Dan, come to Hollywood. I see you as a successful producer within five years. So with that encouragement, and it didn't take much encouragement, believe me, uh, with that encouragement, I got a grant from the Lilly Endowment to support me in an internship at Universal. And through uh, a, a contact, Will Hayes Jr., son of the morality of Czar of Hollywood, who happened to be the mayor of Crawfordsville, Indiana, uh, and who was among uh, my friends there, uh, I, I got uh, the uh, director, writer-director of Miracle on 34th Street and, and Airport, George Seaton, to sponsor me. Uh, I, I was going to be his apprentice. Uh, so off I went, um, and uh, George was dying when I got to Hollywood. I, uh, I actually got, we'd exchanged letters, and, uh, but I only got to meet him once on his deathbed. He's barely able to talk in this darkened room. Made a joke at the beginning. Well, what happened is, you know, he made Natalie Wood a star in Miracle on 34th Street. And at that point in time, I was apprenticed to Gil Cates making what was not a very good movie, The Last Married Couple in America, starring Natalie Wood. So the night before I was to go meet George, I went to her and explained that he was dying and asked if she wanted to send him a note or something. She gave me a letter. Actually, she, she was like most stars, very standoffish, except those that she was very familiar with. She was a different person when RJ, her husband, showed up on the set. But she actually teared up. I couldn't believe it, because she was, she was pretty chilly to, to me and to almost everyone else on the set. Uh, and she gave me this letter that I carried to him. Uh, at any rate, he, bless him, I, what a wonder, he was Chris Kringle. He was that character that Edmund Gwen played. Uh, I'm getting off on a tangent, but <laughs> just about two weeks before he actually died, I got a phone call from him and from him and his wife and Phyllis. And they said, we're sorry we haven't kept in closer touch but our son just died. And I thought, my God, they're calling me to see how I'm doing when they just lost their son. Uh, anyhow, he was Chris Kringle. He put me in touch with uh, the uh, head of the physical plant at Universal, this guy named Al Dorskin, bald, you know, dead rattlesnake eye, dead shark eyes. I'm convinced they modeled a shark after him in Jaws. And uh, <laughs> Al basically said, you got to pass to the studio. You're on your own, kid. So I went over and introduced myself to Verna Fields, the editor of Jaws, the mentor of Spielberg, Mother Cutter. And she took me under her wing and got me 
assigned to the Gil Cates movie. And eventually I, I made contact over uh, with the, uh, the new head of the story department. He offered me a job. I resigned my tenured professorship, the uh, most secure job in America, and, uh, only, and only to find that there was something called the Story Analyst Guild that wouldn't let me accept the job that I'd been offered. So I went for four or five months uh, house sitting, homeless, <laughs> house sitting, living on peanut butter and bananas, and $10 a week uh, that I'd earned from writing a story for current biography about Marty Ritt. Uh, still so that's again admit, another long-winded story. But you still demanded everybody call you professor, right? When you're <laughs> that's what I would have done. You know, I didn't even let my students call me doctor. I I just wasn't. You know, doctor was was Doctor Basham who brought me into the world. Uh, I, I I was never comfortable with that. Uh, the only time I've ever used it is to get a good hotel room at places like the Awani in Yosemite. Um, oh, that's the <laughs> love the Awani. I, I, I thought the most yeah. part of that story was going to be that you were a courier for a letter from Natalie Wood to the man who started her career and he was on his deathbed and it turns out to be his actual death was even more this this is that story alone was up and down and all over the place so this is this is great uh, the Hollywood stories are never ending already I can tell with you <laughs> but let's tie it back into the book because now you've seen a bunch of students you've you, you've told a brief history of your journey through uh hollywood and you choose to tell the story about out of control actors in the 40s i think there are plenty of out of control actors today <laughs> so, um, <laughs> so how so do you see any real life parallels between the characters you created and people you had in in your real life or real life scenarios that inspired them or did you just wipe the slate and say i got a story to tell i'm gonna make it up from scratch Oh, wait a second. I, I got to throw, because I had a similar question, but yeah. when I was reading about some of these, especially your leading man, Brian Murphy, the boozy leading manly man, I had envisioned that you were possible, and I could be way off, but I was thinking of troublesome actors like William Holden, Robert Mitchum, Spencer Tracy. Were they patterned after him? Well, <laughs> all of the above. Uh, <laughs> Spencer Tracy primarily because his image was so fatherly uh, in so many of his films. Uh, Captain's Courageous, oh my God. Uh, uh, Boys Town, well, you could go on and on and on. And, and then in the later uh, career, oh, and, and, and the, the rumpled, befuddled uh, guy who did all those films with Catherine Hepburn. Uh, well, yeah. he was a raging, violent alcoholic. He tore up bars and people, and there was a lot of work that there, that had to be. There was actually uh, a uh, uh, what do they call it? I'm not sure if it was a Tracy mobile, uh, but they they did have an ambulance that they would send. It. If he started to tear up a bar, they they put in it and yeah, <laughs> uh, but it, it, yeah, there were an awful lot of them, uh, and I was fortunately spared that in my own career. For the most part, they don't allow the writer on the set. So you don't have a lot of uh, contact with, uh, with the stars. I suppose my closest contact with us, well, two of them, uh, Bruce Willis and, uh, and then I got to know Valerie Harper really, really well. Uh, neither one of them 
came into play in the writing of the book. I mean, it, yes, Hollywood is, is glamorous. Uh, behind the scenes, not so glamorous. There's a lot of very, very bad uh, behavior. Uh, my thinking in, in the book was it's not, on, I wrote my dissertation at Princeton on, uh, on Scott Fitzgerald. And one of the things I did before I sat down to, one of the last things I did before I sat down to write someone to watch over me was reread The Great Gatsby uh, because of the first person narration and how important that voice of Nick Carraway was. I think the voice of Jack Shannon is every bit as important in, in my book. But the, the parallel to Fitzgerald that comes to mind is The Beautiful and Damned. Uh, it's a very bad book with one of the greatest titles in history. Uh, people often call it The Beautiful and the Damned. As a matter of fact, most people call it that. No, they're missing the point. For Scott Fitzgerald, the beautiful were the damned. And I think that's true so often, so often in Hollywood. Uh, these people who have everything, some of them have it handed to them, especially in the old days. Uh, it, and and they, they abuse that great good luck. There, there are many people who don't make it in Hollywood who have every bit as much talent as those who do. Uh, the ones who remain real human beings are the ones who know they got lucky. Uh, the ones who got lucky overnight, they start to believe in their own myth. Bruce kind of falls into that category. Uh, he, if there was anyone in the room with the two of us, he played Bruce Willis. He played that character. Uh, and matter of fact, when I met him in his trailer, uh, moonlighting, he uh, he immediately said, "I, I was writing um, a remake of In a Lonely Place, a film, a terrific film uh, starring Humphrey Bogart." He says, "I'm going to be the new Humphrey Bogart." Uh, modesty was was not one of his faults. Uh, so he, you know, he was a bartender, and and the next week. He was a superstar. And I think, you know, it, it hurt him in ways uh, and led him to, to behave in ways he probably would not have otherwise. Now, Valerie was just the opposite. Oh my God, she was the sweetest, dearest lady you could ever hope to meet. And uh, I, I can't say enough good. She'd bring candy to the set and pass it back around to all of the crew members. Uh, when, when she wrapped her part on uh, Death of a Cheerleader, she, she got out a megaphone and said goodbye to everyone. Uh, anyhow, she was, she was a dear. So you find both sorts. Uh, mostly what you find behind the scenes, not, not, not in front of the camera, but, but just the people who, who never get in front of the camera are people who are in love with the movies and realize what a privilege it is to, to work in them. But like I say, some of the stars start to believe their own myths and that's too bad. Yeah. Uh, Dan, returning to uh, Shannon's character, uh, we talked about- we, I just want to make really sure we establish that Jack Shannon is our lead. In Jack Shannon, yeah. To watch over Jack yeah, Shannon the, is the PR the guy, the uh, quote unquote fixer guy. Yeah. Right, yeah. yes. A lot of, anybody that's ever 
watched Ray Donovan, I'm sure they'll draw comparisons. But Shannon is very different because he's got this dry wit, and it's it's wonderful to you actually can hear it through his, through the dialogue that Dan delivers. Um, we had talked about Shannon's character of about some of the inspiration. You might have gotten it from a book by Mark Harris called Five Come Back, a story of Hollywood in the Second World War. Can you elaborate for those not familiar with this narrative nonfiction? Yes, uh, it, it's a wonderful book. And I think it was turned into a documentary as well. Uh, <clears throat> it's the story of five Hollywood directors who, when the war broke out, volunteered and uh, ended up making movies behind the lines. Uh, many of them, it, let's see, it was John Ford who was wounded doing uh, one of his documentaries. Uh, it was Frank Capra, uh, John Huston. Uh, his famous film is the, uh, the Battle of San Pietro, uh, which he restaged. He got there too late for the actual battle, uh, but that was not known at the time. Uh, and then there was, there was George Stevens, and I'm leaving out uh, one of the big ones. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm blanking out on the, the, the fifth director. At any rate, the war changed all of them dramatically. And that's really what I was looking for. I wanted, I wanted to get some sense of the kind of damage because I've never been to war. Uh, I've, I've been spared that experience. I have, I have dear friends, including my brother, who have been and who at some level of consciousness are fighting the war in Vietnam to this day. Uh, at any rate, I was particularly moved by, by Stevens, who was there for the freeing of the death camps and uh, whose documentary footage was used in the uh, trials at Nuremberg. Uh, he was probably the top comedy director in Hollywood. I mean, he started out with those Laurel and Hardy things, some, some of the classic Laurel and Hardys. Uh, uh, what, woman of the year. I mean, the, the, the more the merrier. I mean, these wonderful, wonderful screwball comedies. He came back from the war. And as I recall, he never made another comedy. Uh, he, he did that terrific film with Montgomery Cliff uh, based upon an American tragedy. Uh, Montgomery Cliff and Elizabeth Taylor. <clears throat> he, he did Shane. Uh, the Diary of Anne Frank. I mean, he, his, his work was very, he was fundamentally forever altered and everyone around him could see it in him. I also read extensively about J.D. Salinger, who experienced everything that my character, Jack Shannon did. He, he survived D-Day, the Battle of the Bulge, the freeing of the death camps, and he came back forever changed. Uh, that's what led to all of this Eastern theology that informs his, his later work, and I, I think kept him from ever writing another great novel after Catcher in the Rye. Uh, fundamentally, fundamentally changed by those experiences. So, uh, I've, and, and I, I did a lot of other reading uh, about 
World War II uh, and, and the way that it changed the people who fought it. There are four or five other books and a lot of articles. Because uh, I really wanted to know as close as I could firsthand, and obviously it is secondhand, but it felt firsthand to me. You, you imagine your way into the minds of these people and it becomes very, very real for you. Uh, but yeah, those are some of the sources of, uh, of the character. Okay, on a, on a lighter note. Wait, let me, let, me, let me follow up real quick there, Ray. Oh, go ahead. Before go I ahead. get light, because I got two things. I peeked real quick. Your fifth director there was William Wyler. Yes, yes, of course. And that is a documentary series on Netflix. I think mm -hmm. Meryl Streep even narrates it. They got no shortage of like quality directors from <clears throat> Guillermo del Toro to Steven Spielberg, I think, to talk about the whole uh, time, that whole era that you're talking about now. Yeah, yeah it's very good. It's very yeah. good. Sorry, Ray, continue. Oh, no, and, and also, wait, no, there's one more thing. Because <laughs> did you say, did you say John Houston like recreated something for his documentary? Or, or, for, the, for the Battle of San Pietro. I'm he, pretty sure that was the one. He recreated he a sequence too late. in his propaganda documentary. Yeah, he got there too late. Uh, okay. <laughs> now, I think he also did the Battle for the Aleutians or the, the, the something for the Aleutians. I'm, and, and that was real. Uh, but... I'll get up there and pretend to shoot each other and i mean it's crazy okay well no, no, it, it's uh, it well it, it's a very power i watched it it's, it's been a long time now but it's 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 very powerful i can understand why it's kind of legendary propaganda all right ray uh, i was gonna say on a lighter note the most <laughs> interesting tidbit in dan's book uh was the mention of the sewing circle and the account was so vivid that I had to look it up. And, and lo and behold, I find that it was real. It, Dan, please give some facts about this group that <laughs> not too many people nowadays know about. No, they don't. Uh, <laughs> the Sewing Circle was a, a group of female Hollywood stars who were uh, lesbian or bisexual. Uh, and they tended to be those stars who were so cold they were hot, like Marlene Dietrich, like Greta Garbo. Uh, uh, oh, there, there, there were actually a bunch of them. <laughs> and there have been two or three books written about the sewing circle. And, and even so, it somehow escaped wide public notice. Uh, and they, they, would meet. Hattie McDaniel was apparently one of them. Catherine Hepburn, uh, I believe. She could very well have been. You know, there's so much controversy about uh -huh. her and about the relationship with Spencer Tracy. And, you know, I, I almost wrote George Cukor's autobiography for him. And uh, I spent some time at his place uh, up uh, off of uh, Doheny. You, you go through this... Uh, there's this wall covered with ivy and there's this, this full arched wooden gate. And uh, you step in, there's terraced gardens leading up to this fabulous home with a swimming pool in front of it. The swimming pool, which was the model for the swimming pool and something's gotta give uh, the Marilyn Monroe movie that was her last, that was incomplete, that almost drove him over the edge. Uh, and then down at the bottom of the garden over on the one side was the cottage where Spencer Tracy and Catherine Hepburn conducted their affair. So uh, it was 
it was really, he was quite a character, by the way. I, <laughs> I don't know if you have any, but I, it was a friend at the Directors Guild who put me in touch with him. I got a phone call from him and without even a hello, it's Mr. Bronson, George Cukor here. Uh, he says, uh, I suppose David Shepard has told you, I'm, 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 uh, I'm going to write my, my autobiography. I'm thinking of calling it the, the greatest story ever told. So I understand that title may possibly have been used already. Are, are you a good writer, Mr. Bronson? I said, oh, I'm, I'm a great writer. A great director deserves a great uh, writer. And he's, ah, very good, very good. But if you are not, I shall find you out. Well, one of the world's great characters. Uh, and and he was was one of the enablers of, of that affair. So I, whether whether it was physical or not, I can't begin to tell you. Well, you already have said that if you jump to fame, you know, you're, it's going to be a riskier road for you than if you sort of work your way or ease your way into it. And regardless, you need to have respect for the the business and the industry and everything in it. What other advice do you have? Because like you, you've obviously written about people here who are in trouble and Jack Shan's got to go take care of it. So what advice is there for young people coming into Hollywood in any position, whether it's actors or in executive positions like yours who can equally get involved in a racy lifestyle? Well, the first thing, I, I, I did a, an unproduced screenplay for USA Cable about an acting coach. And so I, I hung out with a bunch of the top acting coaches in Hollywood as research for this thing. And one of them said to me, you know, Dan, I'll never be unemployed. And I said, really, how, how do you know that? And he said, well, every month, 6,000 young people show up in Hollywood hoping to become stars. Uh, and I thought, oh boy. <laughs> uh, it's the same with writers, would-be writers, would-be directors, would-be anything to do with Hollywood. And what percentage of them actually make it? I'd, I, I couldn't begin to, to make an estimate. I know it would be a fraction of a percent. It's that hard. I'll, I'll, and, I'll make the percentage. Let's go with one. <laughs> okay, I think you're... <laughs> You're a real optimist, and yeah. and you definitely belong in Hollywood. Yeah, I think Hollywood's kind of optimism. I, I think, I think Hollywood's it's going to be that easy, you know. Uh, it, uh, a friend of mine did this book called Working in Hollywood years ago, and it was interviews with fifty-five people working in fifty-five different disciplines uh, in Hollywood. I was the story editor. You know, I had everyone from the craft services guys to the studio head, and one of the questions they they asked me, I don't know whether I ever got in the book or not. Uh, but it's a question they ended up, I was the first interviewed, uh, and they ended up asking a lot of people the same question. What, what would you advise someone who wants to find a place for themselves in Hollywood? And I, I said, I would, I would tell them, don't do it unless, unless you're convinced that this is what you were born to do, that there's nothing else for you, that you're willing to put up with every frustration, every roadblock, every humiliation possible until finally luck strikes, if it ever strikes. And that's just, that's, that's the brutal reality. So there's the one thing. Uh, 
now a more direct answer to your question, if you are among the lucky ones to get through, to get in, to get past the guardians at the gate, then remember how lucky you are. Remember how very, very lucky you are because there are a thousand other people out there who probably have just as much talent as you do who didn't have that kind of luck or maybe didn't have the stick-to-itiveness. Uh, you're very, very lucky. Keep that in mind. I think Tom Selleck turned out to be that kind of guy. You know, he was under contract at Universal for years and years and years, made all kinds of uh, pilots, none of them took. And we're, we're talking a lot of years. And then in the same week, in the same week, he was offered uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark as Indiana Jones and uh, uh, Magnum P.I. And he, he got the Magnum P.I. offer just before he got the uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark offer and accepted it instead. But I've, I've never really met him. I was in a room with him once and watched him interacting with other people. And he's just folks. Uh, he's not playing a role. I think he knows how lucky he is. And I don't think, I, mean, I, haven't, I haven't talked to Bruce Willis in decades. Uh, he may be very, very different now. I hope he is. Uh, he's had a lot of well-deserved success, but Back at the beginning, he was convinced that he deserved it. And I don't, I don't know that anyone deserves it. Uh, there are, as I say, a lot of talented people, and some of them get lucky. For more in that vein, uh, your first book was called Confessions of a Hollywood Nobody, and that uh, you've called The Survivor's Guide to Hollywood. And I'll ask one more, I'll ask a few questions about that book, and just as I cap off the, uh, the someone to watch over me, uh, segment of all this by saying, how do you celebrate the launching of a book during COVID? You're not, uh, do you have anything planned? I mean, you can't go on speaking engagements, signings are off the table. So what are you doing to say, cause this, by the time this airs, it'll be out. It's March 9th available everywhere, Amazon. And uh, like I said before, Barnes and Noble. So what are you doing? What's, what's the big celebration? Is there one? Well, I'm here. <laughs> yeah, I'm there here. we go. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, this is the sort of thing that I'm trying to do. As a matter of fact, on uh, Wednesday, I'm going to be doing another virtual appearance, this time uh, at or on the uh, Poison Pen Bookstore's book chats. And I'm going to be uh, in a, a joint appearance with Phil Margolin, uh, the one who has compared my, it's right on the cover of the book, has, has compared my book uh, to uh, uh, The Big Sleep and the Maltese Falcon. Uh, he has written, well, I don't know how many he's written, he's way ahead of himself. I, I think he's published 24 books now. Uh, and most of them have been New York Times bestsellers. So it's a real privilege to be appearing with him. He's got the kind of audience that I haven't. I'm a Hollywood nobody. I mean, nobody knows my name. I, I mean, as a matter of fact, that's Emily Dickinson's wonderful poem is sort of the epigram uh, to my book. I'm nobody. Who are you? Are you nobody too? There's two of us. Don't tell. Uh, at any rate, uh, the great thing about that is they, they post it on their, uh, their Facebook page and it stays up for a long, long time. And 
Previous guests have included Michael Conley, Walter Mosley, James Patterson. Uh, let's see, Harlan Coben is coming up um, uh, uh, next week. Uh, so that that kind of thing. And uh, I'm 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 just you know trying to get as many of, of that as much of that kind of exposure as I possibly can. Yeah, it's tough, and I hate it because I love doing public speaking. I have such a good time. Uh, and I, I love getting out and, and mixing with, with the public. Can't do it. So anyone else who would like to interview, I'm available. <laughs> <laughs> off, completely off the subject, but have you gotten your COVID uh, vaccination yet? Yes, I was, I was among the lucky ones. Uh, my wife and I got our vaccinations about a week and a half ago, the, the second. Oh. Vaccinate. The second one is less fun than the first. Uh, I've heard. <laughs> yeah. And I hear it's two weeks after that second one where really you're much, yeah. you're as the most safe you're going to be in that exactly. transition period. So you're almost exactly. out of the woods. That's good. Almost out of the woods. I'll find some other woods to get into. <laughs> uh, now, again, I mentioned this Confessions of a Hollywood Nobody is about the people who keep the Hollywood gears churning. There's you know, 98% of people you don't hear about who aren't Schwarzenegger or Natalie Wood or, um, but give me a story about just one of the names I saw when you, in this, in this book's description, just, uh, whichever one's best Katzenberg, Michael Eisner. Did you meet Hitchcock? Any one of those? Who's got the well, most interesting story of a run-in with you? Let, let me, let me start with Hitchcock. You remember I used to teach a seminar in Alfred Hitchcock. He's my hero. He, he is this man who made these immensely entertaining films that he lifted to the level of art. And that was always my objective as a screenwriter. That this is what you should try to do. You know, try and probably fail again and again and again, but that's, that was my objective. So I, I considered him the Shakespeare of the cinema. Uh, and when I was interning at Universal, I was over at the uh, the news story editor's office, it was noon in the, in the old motel building, across the street from the main lot. I mean, it was it was as junky as things get. They were they were making the the Blues Brothers at the time, and they were on down the hall and they tore the place apart every night with drunken revelry. Uh, it was it was interesting. Anyhow, it's quiet noon. No one's there. Uh, phone rings, and John, the story editor, John uh, Humphreys answers the phone and he says, yes, yes, Mr. Hitchcock, I'm familiar with your work. And I go, what? Alfred Hitchcock is on the phone. My hero, the genius, the great genius. And I'm having a meltdown while John is calmly talking to Alfred Hitchcock. And uh, it turns out that the uh, studio had, um, had put Hitchcock's latest picture, Short Night, and turnaround, uh, largely because they felt he was too old and too alcoholic and too arthritic to make uh, a picture in midwinter in Finland. I mean, there may have been something to their thinking there. <laughs> At any rate, he was looking for a new project. And uh, John sent him Whispers uh, by Dean Koontz who was a cult writer at the time, not, not widely popular. Uh, it turns out Whispers would be his breakthrough book. And I got it the same night Hitchcock did. And I stayed up all night reading it. And it was, 
it was about that high in manuscript. Three in the morning, I put it on the edge of the bed. I got down on my knees side, beside the bed and the pain in my knees kept me awake till I could get through to the end. I was so excited by this thing. And I, uh, I, I went back and raved about, well, Hitchcock loved it as much as I did. And John made a, a deal for him. Uh, and Ned Tannen, who later became a dear friend uh, and my boss at Paramount, he was, he was head of, of production at Universal at the time. He calls John up. Now John is the newly appointed story editor. He's just gotten the job. And Ned says, what do you think you're doing? You be nice to that old man. You say yes to that old man, but you never ever do business with that old man. Well, <laughs> the deal went away. I tracked it and it went to, I think it was CBS Theatrical. And they hired the writer of Zeffirelli's Brother, Son, Sister, Moon, the story of St. Francis of Assisi yeah. to do the adaptation. <laughs> and I thought, what? <laughs> oh, uh, they, it didn't go anywhere. They, they spent oh, a lot of money and, and they, they just let it go. Uh, so that I, I stepped in with my producing partner at the time, Donna Dubrow. And uh, uh, we... Uh, we took it over to Ted Field, who was just getting Interscope Pictures started. And I gave the first and possibly best pitch of my life. I had Ted leaning over like this and back like this, jumping, I'd be pounding on the desk. And then I refused to tell him the end. And we had a deal when we walked out of the office. Uh, so Hitchcock really, though he never knew it, was responsible for my becoming a writer. I can tell you stories of many others. I mean, <laughs> whatever you like. Well, here, I'm, I'm going to pinpoint a few because uh, go go sure. get that book too. Then if you're if you're out buying Dan Bronson's <laughs> books, get get them both. <laughs>